All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Yogic Studies podcast. This is episode 34. I'm your host, Seth Powell. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Dakmar Vujastik. I just learned the proper pronunciation of her name uh, before we hit record. Uh, Dakmar is Associate Professor in the History, Classics and Religion Department at the University of Alberta in Canada. And she will be teaching our upcoming course, YS122, Yoga, Ayurveda and Alchemy. Dakmar, welcome to the Yogic Studies Podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. Yes. We're, we're very excited to have you here uh, today to learn about your research, your teaching, a bit about your background, uh, and we're very excited for this upcoming course. Um, you know, we always ask students at the end of courses, what courses would you like to see in future uh, installments? And without a doubt, every single exit survey says yoga and Ayurveda. We need courses on yoga and Ayurveda. So this is something people have been asking for for a long time. And uh, I think we couldn't have found a, a better person, a more suited to, to talk about not just Ayurveda, but yoga and Ayurveda. And as we'll see today, alchemy, uh, Indian alchemical traditions as well. So again, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Why don't we kick things off, though, learning a little bit about you, Dakmar. Tell us a little bit about um, where you are and what, what you do today. Yeah, thanks, Seth. So um, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm myself looking forward to this course. You know, these are topics that I've researched for a long time. And it's really nice to get this opportunity to share my research and my thoughts on these, these topics. And I'm excited to hear that people have been asking for a yoga and Ayurveda course. And I kind of hope to seduce people into Indian alchemy as well, <laughs> that they will find uh, interest in, in that and maybe want to learn a bit more about it. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I'm Associate Professor in History, Classics and Religion um, at the University of Alberta. And so, you know, the, the University of Alberta doesn't have a South Asian studies department, but it does have a number of South Asianists. So, for example, my husband, Dominic Biastic, is also here. We have Neil Delal, we have Patricia Saltoff, and together we all teach courses uh, on South Asia, on the history of South Asia. And um, so I myself teach uh, all sorts of courses, also in the religious um, um, department, uh, things about Hinduism and, and, and you know, basically Indian religions, but also on my actual topics of research. So history of Indian medicine, history of the Indian alchemy, uh, history of yoga, and so on. So um, that sort of part of the job is, is to teach, and it's quite a substantial part of the job. And then part of the job is to continue continue my, my research. Uh, so, and my research is particularly focused on the history of alchemy at present. And there's always a medical element and there's always a yoga element as well. So mm. you know, this is something that I, I continue uh, to do sort of following on from uh, my previous job, which was as a principal investigator of a research project on yoga, Ayurveda and alchemy at the University of Vienna. So this is sort of my day-to-day my -day life here at the University of Alberta. Wonderful. And, and we'll definitely get into the, the Ayur Yoga project here uh, shortly. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about your background, though. How did, you, how did you get into this field of work? How did you first discover Indology, the study of Sanskrit, Ayurveda, and, and alchemy, and so on? Yeah, it's always a little bit 
difficult for me to reconstruct this because it's now quite a long time ago, right? I started studying Indology, uh, so Indian studies uh, in Bonn in Germany in, in the early 90s. So mm-hmm. I've been at this for, for quite a long time now. Um, I think at the time, you know, when I when I finished school, I was looking for something in the humanities and I wanted to learn about something that I really didn't know anything about. So it really wanted to, uh, you know, broaden my horizons and, and be confronted with something that wasn't immediately recognizable to me. And so, you know, whether, you know, I, I kind of alighted on Indian culture as something that was very foreign to me, but it could have been something else as well. It's just that uh, when I went to uh, the Indological seminar, I just liked the look and feel of the place, as it were. And, mm. um, you know, and I took a, a few terms of, of classes and then really kind of caught the bug, as it were, learning Sanskrit and just being confronted with this very interesting, complex culture and its history. And yeah, and just went went from there really. And uh, medicine as a sort of area of specialization history of medicine within Indology was something that I started uh, for my MA actually, for my dissertation. Um, and I, I translated a seventh century work on medicine or rather just a chapter from that work on, on conception and birth. And I just thought it was a very interesting area. My um, main professor, uh, Klaus Vogel, uh, had um, had done work on this medical work. So one of his sort of areas of specialization was medicine. So it made sense for me to sort of also work in that area. And I just found it really interesting. And one of the things that was so interesting for me was, you know, in classical Indology in Bonn, you know, we really dealt with the past and we mostly worked uh, philologically. We worked with texts. You know, I didn't have many classes, for example, that were lectures. Uh, we had reading classes. Mm. So we just just read Sanskrit texts and translate. And, and so you have this sort of, you're in the past in your mind and you're reading texts and so on, but Ayurveda, you know, it still has this, this practice that is still happening today. You know, I knew of practitioners in India that were using these texts that I was translating. And I just thought that was really fascinating and, and just so interesting. And um, after finishing my MA, I went and visited India again, I mean, for the umpteenth time, but this mm-hmm. time I went to Kerala and I actually visited some of these practitioners of medicine who were using the text that I had just translated for my MA. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's really what started sort of my passion for this area of research. Wonderful. Yeah, that must have been um, a special experience. Sounds like you, you, you started to go to India frequently, but uh, w- what were some of your early impressions of, of, of being in India? Can you recall? And, and, especially in those Ayurvedic contexts, you know, stepping out of the classrooms, out of these reading rooms, out of the texts and seeing this living tradition, were there things that sort of surprised you uh, about the ways in which uh, these traditions were still alive, as you say? Well, I mean, my visiting India predates my going, you know, for the the Ayurvedic practitioners by, by a good decade. And I remember being quite shocked at how different modern India was to what the texts were describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, it was my first time in Asia. This was in, you know, 94 or something like that. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it was a real adjustment, uh, you know, as a young woman also traveling in South Asia is, is not always very easy. Uh, but visiting, uh, you know, 10 years later, visiting the, the practitioners in Kerala was, uh, was a delight 
well, first for their generous hospitality, you know, there's me just sort of turning up and saying, oh, I hear you use those texts and your practitioners and, your, and, and can I stay with you and can I, can I watch you practice? And uh, they were a bit perplexed. Uh, but also very welcoming. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like Indian hospitality in my mind. And so the generosity uh, with which they welcomed me and let me, you know, participate in, in what they were doing. Yes, I mean, I, uh, for, you know, I had just translated this uh, chapter on pregnancy and birth and so on. So nothing that I witnessed in, in Kerala had anything <laughs> to do with that, right? So what I did see was they showed me their factory on uh, where they made their own medicines. Um, and they I, I sat in on consultations, of which I didn't understand much because they were happening in Malayalam, a language mm -hmm. that I had not learned. I still haven't learned. So, but I could sort of just see the ways things worked. I think one of the things that surprised me was in the consultations was just how fast they were. So you know how the Ayurvedic theory is really complex and diagnosis is complicated. And so I had this sort of expectation that uh, a doctor's visit would take quite a long time with the doctor taking a lot of time doing all the various um, questioning and, and, and checks and so on. And instead a sort of typical uh, visit seemed to take no more than two minutes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the the um, the father of the family, who was the the main doctor, was saying that one of the ways to recognize a really good Ayurvedic doctor would be their ability to diagnose very very quickly. So it's mm. like instant. Oh, I see, and then you know have the solution at hand. So he would see you know like a hundred patients a day, easy. Yeah. And and that was that was a complete surprise to me. And also, you know, there weren't these things that we now think of in the West often of, you know, Ayurveda, like the massages and so on. Uh, really, most of the interventions were about him saying, right, you need this and that medicine. And very often he wouldn't actually write a prescription to go to a pharmacy to get the medicine, but would say, you can do this at home, get this route and that route and that route, boil them together, cook them, take it three times a day. So that was also very interesting to me to see. And they, they, he said that they would always prefer these freshly made medicines, though some things do need something that is prepared well in advance and so on. But um, yeah, that was something that I found also really, uh, really fascinating. They could show me also in their garden, in their home garden, uh, a lot of the medicinal herbs they would be using. And the last thing that, that it was a sort of something I hadn't really thought about before, but when they showed me the storage room for the medicinal roots and so on, the roots all looked generally the same. I have no idea how they keep them apart, how they are able to <laughs> identify them properly for making mm -hmm. the medicines. Uh, but obviously they are, they are able to, but that was the thing that sort of you know, really set me to thinking of just, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of uh, identification of the materials when harvesting and later in storage, you know, would be quite a challenge. Mm. Well, I, I have so many follow-up questions to that, but I think I'm going to keep keep moving uh, so that we're not here all day uh, just traversing <laughs> sure. uh, your past. But clearly those, those experiences must have been very formational for you and inspired you to carry on and to do a PhD and then eventually to become a, a full a professor. Um, so as you've continued, it seems like you're, you've continued to refine your research topics as well, of course, as we all do, but you, you have really stayed with these topics um, through your career. Uh, and this led to you developing this five-year research project uh, called Ayur Yoga, uh, the Entangled Histories of Ayurveda, Yoga, and Alchemy. 
Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project, who was on board, uh, you know, its scope, its aims. Um, I think, was this from 2015 to 2020 around That's that right. time? Yes. So it just finished uh, a couple years ago, although I imagine you're still probably wrapping some things up with it. But yeah, tell us about the Ayur Yoga uh, project. And, and just for our listeners, I'm sure many of you have heard of this, but perhaps more of you were familiar with uh, another ERC research project, the Hatha Yoga project. And this was actually going on at the exact same time. We had these two huge research projects within these allied fields, which was was just sort of this incredible moment kind of in these Indological and yogic worlds that these were being recognized. I just wanted to say that up front. Like this was sort of, I maybe we'll look back at it as this sort of golden age of ERC funding. I don't know, but uh, the incredible. Uh, so much has come out of this, so... Yeah, so the, the ERC, the European Research Council, has actually now funded a number of sort of Indological or South Asian studies projects also after the Hatha Yoga project, after Ayur Yoga. But at the time, we were sort of pioneers in this. Um, yeah, and it was wonderful that both projects got funded at the same time. And we worked together quite a lot. And in fact, it was sometimes the same people. So, for example, Jason Birch was first on my project and then moved over to the Hatha Yoga project and but kept on working uh, with us. So um, some of his work really was foundational to to our outcomes. Um, so yeah, I mean the the project started. Um, I had I had um, thought about how to um, you know to understand to understand medicine a bit better, how to understand yoga a bit better, and in, in the the research that I'd done before that. And I was just sort of thinking of, of as a you know practitioner of postural types of yoga myself, I'd always wondered a little bit at um, how um, you know how how come we think of yoga as something therapeutic nowadays? Because the kind of yoga that I'd studied was in fact with in the school of Desikachar, which is a sort of therapeutic style of yoga. Mm. And but looking at Ayurvedic texts, I, I couldn't really see a lot of yoga in them. And this question was always open to me. You know, where had that happened? Where did where did yoga become medicine, or you know, be considered as something you could use therapeutically? And um, it was always something that I wanted to follow up on. And then with this ERC project, I got the opportunity to do so. Now myself, you know, I had worked on Indian medicine a lot. I worked a little bit on yoga uh, in a project with Elizabeth de Michaelis beforehand, but it wasn't really sort of my area of expertise. So it was very good for me to be able to work with a team. And so initially on my team was Jason Birch, who had this uh, special uh, interest in, in medieval yoga texts. And then also later Christelle Barrois um, entered the, the project. And she had sort of worked a lot on uh uh, things to do with with Puranic literature and so on, so yoga in, in the Puranas and uh, other types of literature, and so she had this sort of area of expertise. And uh, Suzanne Newcomb, who was also then on my research team, who uh, really dealt with uh, modern forms of, of yoga. She had done some research on sort of yoga in Britain beforehand for her PhD, and so she was like the ideal person to to join in to talk about you know modern um, uh, yoga and its sort of therapeutic and medical forms. Um, uh, so, so that was a really good team to sort of, you know, we could really complement each other in the things that we, we knew, both in terms of, you know, time, you know, some people working on the pre-modern area rather than the modern era, uh, era and so on, and, and sort of our knowledge of the various texts and, and practices. 
And so that, that came together uh, very nicely. Jason, of course, did leave the project to go over to the Hatha uh, Yoga project. Christelle then joined. And uh, later on in the project, I, I still had um, some money left over, basically, uh, which was partly to do with the pandemic. We couldn't travel, mm. and I had this massive travel budget. <laughs> and uh, actually, so I couldn't use it, but I could use it differently, and it allowed me to employ Patricia Salto, Mm -hmm. um, uh, who joined sort of the last one and a half years, so almost two years of the project. And uh, with her, I could do some more work on, on alchemy, on the alchemical aspect of things, which I had worked on um, on my own. But uh, now uh, with her support, we could do a bit more work on that. So that's really how it came together. And a lot of these sort of general directions in which we went, I mean, the general brief was to see how these disciplines connected in history over time at different moments, how they mutually influenced each other, or did they influence each other? That was, you know, we couldn't assume. Um, but, you know, the sort of various things that we found out and did were very much down to each researcher's interests and skills and abilities and so on. And so it grew quite organically uh, from the group, I would say. Wonderful. So did you go into this project with certain assumptions about Ayurveda, yoga, Indian alchemy, and their potential shared histories and relationships uh, or, or lack thereof? Did you have certain assumptions or even hypotheses going into the project that were either affirmed or that were challenged or were there things that surprised you over the course of five years and this incredible team and and I know you had many you had a workshop and an international conference and so there was there was a very collaborative effort and as you say so many different areas of specialization but were there any things that, that really stand out as you're you know now writing and and wrapping and you know things up yeah um, so I had assumed, and this was confirmed, that Ayurveda and alchemy had a very deep connection. And I hadn't quite understood quite to what extent they, they are connected. They're very, very deeply uh, connected. And I'll be talking about that a lot in, in this course that I'll be teaching. You look at some of the details of, of this connection. So I knew they were connected, and uh, both in the past and now, um, but I hadn't quite realized quite the extent to which this was the case. I... When it comes to the connections between Ayurveda and yoga, my, my first thought was that this was a new invention, uh, you yeah. know, a modern invention, something that happened in the 20th century. For the reason that I hadn't seen a lot of yogic material, as it were, in, in the pre-modern Ayurveda texts. And that, that continues to be true. There isn't a lot. There is some. It's not completely unconnected, mm -hmm. not at all. Um, actually, you find a bit more on sort of medicine and yoga texts than on yoga in Ayurveda texts. But we did find quite a lot of instances, and you can get a bit of more of an, a sense of, of a narrative there, I suppose, by just going through all the texts. You know, and with, when it comes to the yoga texts, you have to realize that these are texts that you know people hadn't really read before. We didn't have editions of them, and we we now had access to these texts through the Hatha Yoga Project, actually, and so we could actually see a bit more what they were about in terms of what medicine and so on they, they offered. And there's quite a bit of medicine in there, not necessarily Ayurveda as in the Ayurveda of the classical Sanskritic tradition. There's mm. a lot of medicine in there, uh, understood a little bit differently to, to classical Ayurveda. 
I think the thing that surprised me there was maybe sort of the tantric elements and sort of tantric medicine, a whole new era uh, area of research that we weren't able to, to look into very deeply, but we get sort of hints of it uh, through the kinds of names for diseases and so on and things that are sort of described in yoga texts. And then we see this development that I had thought had happened in, in the 20th century, especially in the late 20th century, when, you know, yoga and Ayurveda start to be referred to as sister sciences and so on. And this is something that first happens actually in the West with sort of, um, you know, teachers of Ayurveda and of yoga, people like Vasant Lad and, and uh, David Foley, uh, you know, sort of combining them, bringing them together, Robert Svoboda also, you know, people teaching in the US, uh, you know, about, about these disciplines and bringing them together and then referring to them as, as sister sciences. And it's also picked up in India a lot now. Um, I don't know whether through the influence of these teachers in particular, or whether it's just something that has come through the institution of the Ministry of Ayush, of the indigenous medical systems of India, which includes yoga. But now Ayurveda and yoga are, you know, sort of officially put together in many contexts as systems uh, for the attainment of health in, in India. And this is this is a fairly recent um, development. So think sort of late 20th century and now, especially 21st century is something that has really gathered momentum, I would say. And it's something that maybe we can't see it so much in, in its the pre-modern history of the disciplines, but it's something that you know makes a lot of sense uh, when when you look at how they're now uh, combined with each other or sort of named in the same sentence. So to clarify, you're saying historically when we look at the texts, mm. we do see references to yoga in the medical and alchemical literature. And we yes. do see some references to Indian medicine in some of the medieval yogic literature, but they're not framed as necessarily these sort of sister sciences or with the kind of force in which it's spoken about today that these things are really to be practiced in tandem and together and that one would be sort of a professional aspirant sort of of both. Is that yeah. sort of fair to say? Very, yes, exactly. So they're really des uh, really um, separate disciplines in history, right? You have Ayurvedic literature, you have yoga literature, they do not interact. There's, there's a couple of um, exceptions, like the Ayurveda Sutra, which is all about yoga, but uses Ayurvedic concepts throughout. But that's sort of an outlier. But usually, they don't mention each other very much at all. So in Ayurvedic literature, we do have some important passages in one of the earliest treatises in the Charaka Samhita, and that's more or less it. Mm. And uh, in, in but in yoga literature we have a lot of mention of health and well-being sure. and disease countering and so on and it does use sort of Ayurvedic categories but more in the sense of you know how if I if I tell you I have a cold uh, you know and 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 uh, then I'm not talking as you know a biomedical practitioner I'm just telling you I have a cold you know so in that right. way there's sort of general cultural knowledge of health and well-being that draws on the kind of, you know, the science of the day, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of the general popular knowledge of the day, I suppose. But yogis also had their own ways of countering disease. And, and one of these sort of most different ways of countering disease, different to the Ayurvedic tradition, is, is the use of breathing techniques, uh, for example. And then later of asana, of postural practice to counter disease. So that's something that uh, isn't really mentioned in, in uh, the Ayurvedic tradition at all. 
And uh, in Jason's research, he also found that some of the disease names uh, that you find in yoga texts um, are not actually found in the Ayurvedic tradition, but mm. in tantric texts, so in agamas. So it's not, you know, you do have a lot of, you know, a cold is a cold, you know, you have the, yeah. you know, that same name in Ayurvedic texts and then in yoga texts, but you also have some that, that show that there's some other tradition there, some other medical tradition or another way of thinking about medicine. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because certainly, you know, the earlier texts of yoga, Patanjali Yoga Shastra, earlier Puranic literature, doesn't really describe yoga in that more medical or therapeutic way. It's really more contemplative, soteriological. It's more of a meditative practice in general. But over 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 time, though, especially with the rise of Hatha Yoga um, and other influences, the, there is more emphasis on the body and its cultivation and the use of mudras and asana and these physical practices, right, that are used according to the text, to target particular ailments in the body and, and so forth. But that, is, that does seem to be a change over time within the, within the yoga traditions. Yes, that's right. I mean, we do have, you know, I mean, Christelle Barrois uh, research has, has shown us that there is some early reference to, right. to health in, in yoga context. You know, her work on the text called the Dharma Putrika, which is part of the Shiva Dharma corpus, and which she thinks might be really quite early, just after the Patanjala Yoga Shastra. Uh, and that text um, has quite a lot to say about getting ill through yoga practice, which in, in the case of the Dharma Putrika means breathing exercises and contemplation practices, mm -hmm. but breathing exercises are, are a big part of it. And these, these uh, practices uh, in that text are described as causing some disease symptoms. And it's sort of, it gives you a clue on where you are in your practice. But at the same time, the text then also offers other breathing practices uh, to counteract uh, uh, the illnesses that arise through your yoga practice. And so I think this is probably our earliest example of you know, the idea of establishing health, but actually first establishing disease uh, through, through, yogic, through yogic practice. It's a bit of an outlier. I mean, breath control, of course, is very important very quickly in, in yoga, but the sort of combination of breathing and health, uh, that's sort of a, a very early example of that. And asana practice, of course, as we know, you know, really only developed quite late, you know, this sort of this, this focus on postural practices this is a sort of later development in yoga history. So therefore also the, the you know, the connection with health and, and posture is also late. So let, let's step back just for a second. We're kind of diving into the weeds of yoga and Ayurveda, but for, for our listeners, for, for our viewers, uh, give us a, a very brief introduction to Ayurveda. What is Ayurveda? And, and what, what are the, I'm thinking, what are the goals of this tradition? Because I'm also thinking, are there, you know, complementary goals and aims between yoga and Ayurveda? Yeah, yes, there are, uh, briefly. So obviously, you know, Ayurveda has a really long history, a good 2,000 years, actually longer, and uh, very difficult to sort of say this in a few sentences. But um, one of the things I'll talk about in the lecture as well is when, when the oldest treatises talk about, you know, what is medicine for, it's uh, in order to prolong life. So you're, you're making the patient healthy so that they can live longer and live healthily. So health is in a way 
a little bit secondary. You know, what you want to do is give people a long life. And the reason is that they can then pursue the Chatur Varga, the four goals of life. And those are familiar to all of us who, you know, uh, have some, you know, knowledge about Indic thought. The Chatur Varga are the pursuit of uh, pleasure, karma, artha, wealth, um, and dharma, righteousness, but also sort of religious, uh, religious duty, and moksha, or liberation, spiritual emancipation. And so in the earliest of the Ayurvedic treatise, uh, treatises, the Charaka Samhita, the compendium or collection of Charaka, this is stated outright that, you know, this intervention into health is so that people can pursue these four goals in life. And uh, dharma, righteousness, uh, religious duty is given pride of place. Um, moksha is, is there, but maybe not um, discussed at, at great length in, in the uh, treatises. I was, but I was going to yeah. ask about that. Sometimes there's just the three goals, right, in some of the That's earlier right. literature, and moksha is almost secondary or an afterthought. Yeah, so what we can right? see is that the, the three goals are mentioned um, quite often. So the, you find them referred to a number of times, whereas the moksha is sort of like, it's in that, in that quote that I was just sort of paraphrasing right there. Uh, so it, it's clearly not uh, of quite as strong interest to the mm. medical practitioner as are the, the other three goals. So they're a little bit more interested in the more mundane goals about life now, Mm -hmm. But it's supposed to be the good life, you know, it's supposed to be the dharmic life. And I think this idea of dharma, I mean, dharma is, of course, you know, interpreted differently depending on your religious community and differently over time and so on. But um, this, this sort of spiritual goal, spiritual duty, religious duty is something that the um, Ayurvedic treatises uh, deal with quite a lot. So Ayurveda is a, is a, a system of... Indian medicine that has a particular view of the human and the world that one would practice, right? Not just read about, <laughs> but to practice, to implement in order to achieve the ultimate human life and experience in this world, in this very life. Exactly. I mean, you know, moksha is sort of, that's aside from that, that would be like an extra step, right? That's not in this life. Uh, yeah, so maybe much. that's the yoga. Maybe that's the yoga. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, um, one of the differences between yoga and Ayurveda is that in Ayurveda, there's a trained physician who's intervening between you and these goals, right? So you have the patient and the physician acts on behalf of the patient when their roles are complementary. But, you know, so it's the physician doing something for the patient so that the patient can experience Kama and Dharma and Arta, you know, whereas, of course, in the yoga texts, you know, the yogi is the practitioner, it's doing it for himself or herself. So, you know, it's not really so much um, uh, this other person who is, is uh, you know, the recipient um, of, of the, you know, the, the outcomes of the knowledge, as it were. So that's, that's a pretty big difference. However, in the medical texts, you know, the, the physician helps the patient with a long life and so on, but obviously is also supposed to follow these precepts himself, herself, you know, to, to you know, he's also going to pursue um, uh, dharma and he's going to pursue karma and artha as, you know, a physician is always at the same time also a patient. And indeed, in Ayurvedic mythology, you know, we're sort of talking about how, how does Ayurvedic knowledge come to us? And it's via the gods, 
through the sages, through the Vedic sages, the rishis who then, you know, teach the more normal humans. But the, the sages need this knowledge because they've become ill in this sort of Ayurvedic mythology. They've, you know, they've had sort of city living and they've become, you know, a little bit ill because of it, you know, too comfortable life and so on. And now they need to treat themselves and become healthy again to pursue their spiritual goals and to pursue their religious duties as sages, right? And so they're sort of the proto-patient and the proto-physician at the same time. You know, they're the first humans who do this 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 practice. And so for me, these these rishis are like the yogis. You know, they're they're doing interventions first of all for themselves, mm-hmm. and then out of compassion with humanity. They teach humanity, they train physicians who then can treat others. So there's a sort of connection there, I think, in this mythology with with yogic thought as well. Wonderful. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, and then I think we'll we'll move on to another topic. But um, you know, as someone who's who's working closely with the medieval yoga literature kind of constantly thinking of authorship and and who's writing these texts and for whom the audience and thinking about this connection between the literary traditions, the te- Sanskrit textual traditions, as well as vernacular. Um, but then with the actual kind of on the ground yogi practitioner communities. <clears throat> so within Ayurveda and perhaps alchemy, which we'll get to, it seems to be a little bit different Um or more, maybe more clear cut that these texts really were written or codified. Maybe this, there, you know, this knowledge was transmitted in in ways that are beyond us. But eventually, they were transmitted by humans, codified, written in manuscript form. But were they meant really to be like textbooks to be studied? Were these texts, you know, systematized was and institutionalized from an early period? And then, do we do we know about the history of the ways that these texts were actually used and and uh, you know and practiced to put into uh, to put into an Ayurvedic practice? Uh, yes, we know uh, some things and other things we don't know. But uh, for example, so I, I would see this literature, you know, the uh, the early ones. They're really about defining the medical profession, you know, to 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 sort of show that medicine is a shastra, authoritative knowledge. The practitioners are respectable members of society and they have access through, you know, formalized learning to this uh, specific uh, shastric uh, knowledge. This is also the case for, for alchemical literature. So they sort of, they spend quite a lot of time sort of saying, you know, what are the professional ethics? You know, what are the, the standards of practice and what does this practice look like? And it's all about sort of establishing it as a learned uh, profession, as a, as an authoritative authoritative knowledge uh, and I think that's a little bit different to to many of the medieval yoga texts especially um, but in the in the earliest treatises for example there's this description of how to learn Ayurveda and their texts are mentioned and you know the student is supposed to choose good texts and the good texts are defined by how well they're structured how clear they are do they give all the information that is needed and then you know how does the physician develop his skill? I keep on saying his because it's always men that are mentioned nowadays. Of course, we have a lot of female practitioners. So sort of the gender thing was, has changed over time. But um, so then, you know, you have this sort of professional training of, of physicians. Uh, and, and so, the, the, you know, the earliest texts mention texts being used and, and what are the criteria for knowing which text is good and which text is authoritative and so on. And it shows a training process that uses 
texts. So, you know, we have this, this sense of, you know, a professional group that has particular tools at their hand. We know of pupillage that a, you know, a teacher will teach a pupil, but then they're also using this literature uh, for their training. And, and so this is mentioned in the earliest treatises and also in some of the later ones. Um, so, um, yeah, sorry, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. In in brief, I, I know there's there's much more. Uh, I'm sure, uh, and I, I imagine. I mean, is there any information you have we have from on any um, epigraphical inscriptions or any material culture? I'm also wondering or archaeological things about you know um, uh, Ayurvedic matas. I'm not sure if that's the, even the proper word for it. Uh, but the institutionalization, I'm wondering, and even the communities and physicality of of these traditions. So we don't have, you know, we in the text we hear only about pupillage. So one teacher, one pupil, or maybe a few pupils who live with him. So, you know, it's like a guru-shishya uh, sort of relationship, right? So you don't have like schools with 40 students or something. We don't have any description of that. As for inscriptions, um, we don't have any inscriptions that tell us of, of any such schools or universities. Mm. Uh, what we do have is some inscriptions that relate to the payment uh, for physicians, they get paid in foods, and you know maybe they are they have their job is paid for by um, a temple complex and so on. So that's something that the texts don't tell mm. us anything about. So, so we, we have the we receipts. Have, you know, we have the receipts, as it were. And that physician got two bags of rice and a bit of land, and you know this that sort yeah, of yeah. thing. So we have a little bit of evidence there. There's archaeological evidence maybe for um, you know uh, a space in which patients were treated that's uh, connected with Buddhist monasteries. Um, so, you know, there's yeah. sort of like early kinds of hospitals, uh, as it were, but uh, nothing on um, the training, basically, of, of uh, physicians in a university context. And we know there were universities in, in India, the Buddhist universities, the famous ones, but none of them speak of, of medical training as such. It seems to be even from the Buddhist text itself, it seems that people would have had their medical training before they became monks or nuns. And then they can apply this knowledge, but there doesn't seem to have been a program of training them as, as physicians when they were already ordained. And so for Hindu contexts, we also don't have any, any evidence of sort of larger school trainings until the, the 19th century in, in the context of actually a colonization, which had a very negative impact on pupillage, on, on uh, sort of school, schooling, uh, traditional schools in the, in the first place, and then try to replace these things with um, more formalized schools on the European model. And then in the 20th century, we get this institutionalization of Ayurveda. And then, you know, the structures as we have them now, universities, colleges, and so on, where, where people uh, can learn the practice um, and the theory of Ayurveda in, in, you know, quite long university courses, four years, five years courses to get, you know, a bachelor degree, and then you can do additional degrees as well. All right, so we've we've spoken um, in some detail now about yoga and Ayurveda, but mm -hmm. our third uh, discipline here, and what we'll be looking at in the course, is the Indian alchemical traditions, which perhaps is less familiar to 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 listeners, to to students, certainly to myself. Um, so tell us a little bit, give us a brief introduction to Indian alchemy, and and why is this important to consider alongside yoga and uh, Ayurveda. Yeah, so um, my starting point there was, you know, uh, Indian alchemy or Rasa Shastra as part of Ayurveda, 
or as complementary to Ayurveda because this tradition has a lot of medicine in it and influenced uh, Ayurvedic medicine. Um, and so I sort of saw it as a sort of a package deal, as it were, with, with Ayurveda. So, you know, if you know about Ayurveda, you actually probably know a little bit about you know, Indian alchemy without realizing it. You know, anything that's to do with metals and minerals, poisonous substances within Ayurveda, it's probably come from alchemy, from the alchemical mm. tradition. So we have, uh, you know, as a literary tradition, alchemy develops sort of around the 10th century, maybe a little bit earlier. You know how dates for things is always a little bit difficult to come by and alchemy is no different. Um, and, and these first texts uh, don't describe medicine. They describe making elixirs based on mercury and other materials. And these elixirs are used for elixir regimen called Rasayana. And the outcomes of these regimens are uh, things that yogis were very familiar with because it's things like Jivan Mukti, the liberation uh, while still living. So we have a sort of shared vocabulary. There's also the idea of entering a godlike state, become like Shiva, become Shiva, enter Brahmapada. Um, you know, um, so there's sort of there's uh, clear connections with sort of yogic goals with the early alchemical texts, sort of mercurial uh, tradition. So then instead of, you know, having meditation, you instead will pop a pill more or less <laughs> over a great uh, amount of time. You make you make the materials and then you take them over a certain period of time. Shortcut to nirvana. Shortcut to nirvana. Well, in fact, bit. Patanjali, Patanjali himself in the Yoga Shastra mentions that one of the other ways to attain the cities is through aushadi or herbs. And it looks in the in the Bhashya goes on. Philip Moss has written a bit about this. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. Actually, in a in a volume that I edited, he was it was part of my my project. He came to that yes. workshop and and talked about this. Yeah. So it's sort of the the idea of Rasayana. Now, this is different from the Rasayana already is there in, in the medical tradition. It's one of the eight subject areas of Ayurvedic medicine. It's sort of vitalization therapies, pro-longevity therapies, and so on, rejuvenation. It's called Rasayana. And the elixir regimen of Indian alchemy is also called Rasayana. And so the people mix them up a little bit. They are very strongly connected. The difference being that the alchemical ones all use mercury, whereas the medical ones don't, at least not until... Ayurveda meets alchemy, as it were. The ones so in the Pat Hanjali, yeah. Oh, I was going to finish your thought, and then I'll and then I'll ask. We're just thinking in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, the Rasayana that is mentioned there and is sort of uh, described in the um, Bhashya part uh, describes something even a little bit different. Again, it's somehow it's the use of herbs, so non-alchemical Rasayana. But there's also this whole sort of meeting supernatural beings and being in sort of different dimensions and so on when you when you take that. And that, you know, connects slightly with the medical tradition and connects slightly with the alchemical tradition, but maybe actually describes a third thing, you know, something that is sort of around in, in Indic thought uh, more broadly. However, later medieval uh, yoga texts also describe the taking of pills uh, for enhancing meditation and for, again, you know, reaching the same goals as the alchemists, as the yogic goals, but again, enhanced or made easier or supported by alchemical products. So you're saying, that, you're saying the cannabis yoga class today has a historical <laughs> precedent in this literature. 
<laughs> well, cannabis certainly has a long history of yes. use within uh, yogic circles. And actually, Patricia yeah. Seltoff is doing doing a, a yeah. quite a lot of work on that, as is James Mallinson. So, you know, I think we'll yeah, actually, I saw Patricia topic. recently in, in, at the conference in Krakow, yeah. and she gave a presentation on this. It was a very interesting and entertaining presentation. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you mentioned mercury within Indian alchemy. Why is mercury so important within Indian alchemy? I, this is a really difficult question to answer. You know, we have things, so doctrines that, that could be considered alchemy beforehand, and we hear about it. It doesn't have a literature. It's sort of mentioned in other literatures, narrative literatures, Buddhist texts, and so on. And uh, these traditions are called dhatu vada. Vada is the doctrine, and then dhatu is metals, probably in this, or the you know the doctrine of metals. And the guys who were dhatu vadins, uh, whose doctrine was that of the dhatus, were metallurgists, but they were trying to make gold. And so we have this as as their uh, their, uh, their aim, but it's always people from the outside describing this, you know, and it's often satirized. And so, uh, so these uh, delusional people who are trying to make gold, and sometimes it's shown, no, they, they can do it just like cities are described. You know, yes, you can fly. Yes, you can make gold, you know, that, that sort of description, but there's no mm -hmm. literature attached to this. And then suddenly we get this new literature, this Rasa Shastra or Rasa Vada literature. So again, Vada doctrine and Rasa, Mercury. Rasa can also be translated as essence, so it doesn't have to be Mercury. But when you read the actual text, you can see that Rasa is usually used mm. in the sense of Mercury. Mm. And it's uh, and it's really not clear at all why why suddenly Mercury becomes so important, because in all the descriptions uh, uh, before, it's not there. Mercury is not used. Other materials are used, but, but really uh, iron, for example, is used, but not copper, but not Mercury. And Mercury uh is is um you know doesn't occur uh, on the indian subcontinent mm -hmm. so i mean you have it a little bit in afghanistan and then the next place you get it is in tibet in china right. so uh so it had to be imported probably though the texts uh, say you know there's various places where you can get it from and maybe it's just a matter of amounts you know but there's no mines or so where you can get mercury in india or um mercury sulfide cinnabar no cinnabar in india so it's it's really surprising that suddenly mm. there's this whole tradition that's completely based on on the use of, of mercury and mercury sulfides and so you know the the idea is that maybe it was um, imported uh, from china which had a long-standing alchemical tradition and had been using cinnabar especially but also uh, liquid mercury and that maybe there's some sort of transfer transfer there there's also you know um Maybe the other area it could have come from would be from sort of jewelry making. So mercury is, is used in, in uh, gold plating, for example. So there may have been some knowledge of mercury from, from that area of knowledge. Um, so, but it's still, it's still very unclear why they suddenly all begin using mercury. And mercury is then associated with Shiva. And, and so it's really integrated into, you know, Shaiva thought, into, into Indic uh, religiosity. And sort of, and the the texts themselves, you know, there's there's nothing where you would say, oh, that's that's foreign. That sounds like something Chinese or so. You know, it really sounds Indic. It makes mm. sense in itself the way things are described and so on. So it's just that it's a, surprising because this material itself is not there. 
Yeah, I remember, you know, David Gordon White in his book, Alchemical Body, he speaks a lot about not yogis eating mercury. Uh, is this something that you've encountered either in the literature or, or in your, you know, own experience in India? Um, typically, the mercury is used in some sort of alchemical transfiguration, right? Yeah, so you make a you make a pill which is really complicated to make, and then you take that pill, and and that's then that helps you to to have this sort of experience of transcendence or to develop siddhis or to enhance your meditation. Um, but no, so I myself have not seen yogis in India take these pills. I, uh, James Mallinson once told me that his guru uh, would would take uh, mercury preparations. Um, uh, for rejuvenation purposes, he would have some sort of Rasayana practices, what they were exactly, um, uh, Jim wouldn't tell or didn't know, I don't know, probably wouldn't tell. It's maybe something that's sort of part of secret knowledge where you have mm. to be initiated to hear more about it. Uh, certainly in the the, the texts, I mean, uh, the Kichari Vidya, for example, describes taking pills in the fourth chapter. We have the translation by, by James Mallinson of this. Um, and uh, uh, so there, the, the actual recipes, like the ingredients uh, for the pills there, uh, you know, could be straight from an alchemical text. So, um, you know, so they're using these, you know, these are yogis using this. The thing is that that chapter actually goes back to an older tantric text. And I'm probably going to get it wrong now, but it's, I think, the Matsyendra, Samhita or so. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where that chapter actually is from. So okay. then it's sort of a question about who do you call a yogi, right? And, and so in the alchemical text, the practitioner is often called sadhaka, like, you know, in tantric text, and sometimes they're also called yogi. So, you know, it might have been the same people. When it comes to nat, nats, you know, a lot of the same authorities, you know, the siddhas are mentioned in alchemical texts where you have the same names in yoga texts, the same names in Bhadrayana texts. So, you know, there's yeah. a sort of shared... Um, you know, um, group of, of authorities for, for all these traditions. Um, but we also have Persian accounts of Nats using mercurials for their practices. So we have sort of outsider reports in medieval times about the Nats in particular mm -hmm. being associated with using mercury for um, various purposes. Yeah, this this sort of you know reminds me of David Gordon White's you know book, The Alchemical Body, which he wrote in 1996, and at the time was truly groundbreaking work. You know, Absolutely, really, yeah. you know, opening up uh, the floodgates in in many ways of these these disciplines and in, in how to think uh, together uh, about them, with opening up a whole you know huge body of material that hadn't you know really been critically looked at by very many. South Asianists or Indologists, um, but I, uh, I think there's also some problems now with that book. And you know, it was written over 25 years ago. So of course we would, you know, think that we would improve our understanding of these texts and traditions in that time. Uh, I'm sure David White himself has, you know, revised many of his ideas in in that in that span. So I don't mean to like pick on it, but sometimes <laughs> it, sometimes his work does get picked on quite a bit. Um, but 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 nonetheless, if one picks up that book. Today, I, you know, I, I recall kind of, you know, walking away from it with the overarching feeling that David White is putting forth this argument that that the what he calls the rasa siddhas, so the you know the 
the alchemical siddhas or adepts, the yogis, the not yogis, and the Ayurvedic physicians are sort of one and the same. That this is oh, the Ayurvedic of... physicians, no, no, the Ayurvedic no? physicians are sort of not really part of that that narrative. He does say that uh, alchemy becomes medicalized. So okay. you've got like you have alchemy, and then part of it goes into yoga and sort of drops the whole sort of elixir thing, and the other part becomes medical and becomes Ayurveda. So it's like two strands that I develop see. from there, and that's the thing that he puts forward. In his idea, I think one of the main ideas is that he says, you know, um, basically that that these alchemists uh, were poisoning themselves, and therefore they kind of then internalize the practices and become yogis. So you have like a, a transition from from alchemist to yogi, and I think that is a little bit problematic as a, as a sort of theory, you know, mm. sort of that because um, alchemists continue to be alchemists as well. We have texts, you know, eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth century where they're still making mercurial elixirs not for medical purposes, but but for yogic purposes as well. So that's the one thing that I think that didn't didn't quite, it doesn't quite stand the scrutiny of time, I would say. But um, I myself use his book a lot, and it's got a lot of information that I find really, really useful. He covered mm -hmm. so much ground. So much ground, in yeah. It. yeah. Yeah, okay. So let's, um, let's look ahead now at this course that you're going to teach for us here at Yogic Studies, YS-121, Ayurveda, Yoga, and Alchemy. We've spoken a lot already about all of these different topics, and of course, you can't give everything away because we want people still to take the course. Uh, but why don't you give us just a little bit of a preview and an overview maybe of the structure of the course and sort of what students can expect? Sure. So I mean, in, in thinking about what I wanted to teach in the course, uh, the one thing I'm a little bit uncertain of is, you know, who is my audience? How much do they know beforehand? And mm. I don't know. And therefore, I'm going to start a little bit at zero for all the topics. Um, so what I'll do is we have four classes, 90 minutes each. And I'll start with Ayurveda. I'll start with the history of Ayurveda. And I'll be talking a lot about, you know, literature, but also some of the main con uh, concepts. And the main concepts are important to mention because then, We'll find are they or are they not mentioned in yoga contexts and so on. So we'll talk a bit about that. We'll look at, you know, how how is how is Ayurveda described in pre-modern contexts? What does it look like now? And then in the next uh, class, I'll be looking more specifically at the interactions of Ayurveda and yoga. So what do Ayurvedic texts say about yoga and what do yoga texts say about Ayurveda and what, you know, how has that developed into the whole sister science thing of today mm. that will happen in the, in the uh, second um, uh, module. So it's all about health and, and you know, establishing health and well-being and so on. The third one will be about Rasa Shastra or Rasa Vada. So the Indian alchemical tradition and that's going to be really about the basics. You know, what is this tradition? Because I'm really assuming that people won't know a whole lot about that. You know, if they have read uh, The Alchemical Body by David White, that's a great start. But I'm going to be talking about a lot of the sort of more technical aspects of the tradition, because that's sort of where the interactions happen a lot uh, between Ayurveda and alchemy and later also yoga and alchemy. So I'll just give a sort of broad introduction to that in the third class. And then the fourth one will bring all the threads together and look at uh, an area of commonality between all three disciplines, namely these Rasayana practice, these sort of 
pro-longevity uh, um, vitality practices that are shared by all three to a certain extent and we'll sort of look into the history of that and, and basically what became of it. And so that will be the, the four classes of this course. Wonderful. That, that found, sounds fantastic. I can't wait to watch uh, the recordings of these lectures. Uh, I think it's we're having you teach it at a, at a you know, fortunate time at the end of this five-year research project. So you've had so much time to really digest and try to make sense of all this material that you'll now do the impossible task of compressing into four easy lectures for us, for our enjoyment and appetite. And uh, that's that's wonderful. Who do you think uh, you know might benefit or be most interested in, in a course like this? And what what do you hope that students will take away from this material? Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of trying to make it accessible to a broad public. Anybody who's interested in yoga and Ayurveda and hopefully soon in alchemy. Uh, uh, so you know, it should be something that is that is accessible to to a broad audience. Anybody interested in Indian history, in Indian culture, you know, in Hinduism, in, in Buddhism a little bit, you know. So so it's sort of it's really it's a broad. Indic theme, but also people who are interested in, you know, what what pre-modern India had to say about health, establishing health, why we want health, how how do we attain it, and so on. And so the various answers given to this to this question. Um, what I won't do, and I think it, it does need saying, you know, I'm not a practitioner of Ayurveda, I'm not a practitioner of alchemy, so I won't be giving people DIY tips, you know, to do you know how to practice Ayurveda, but I will sort of talk about, you know, sort of some ideas and some recipes and so on, um, uh, just to sort of give people an idea what, what it feels like, perhaps, you know, as, as a practice. So I think it should be sort of a broad interest uh, uh, to students. And especially, you know, I think you have a certain audience with yogic studies, you know, so, so I'm hoping that this will you know, you were saying that, you know, a lot of people asked for a yoga and Ayurveda course. Yes. So I'm hoping that I will, you know, fulfill some of their wishes. Now, and, you, you know, you, yeah. you just said, you know, you're not a practitioner of it and this won't be a DIY course. And yet I do know, though, that you do have a, a DIY nature about some of your research. You have produced some of these experimental videos with taking these recipes from the classical literature and actually uh, enacting them. Is that right? Can you just say a little bit about that? Yeah, so these were uh, historical reconstructions, right, to the, of recipes that are not used anymore today, uh, but that are described in the oldest of the alchemical treatises. And I was working with an actual Ayurvedic practitioner who had a specialized training in modern medicalized Rasa Shastra, so the sort of iatrochemistry, Indian alchemy. And uh, we were reconstructing recipes. Um, he was, uh, I was translating and he was doing the procedures. Um, but there's one step that we didn't do, namely apply the elixir to a patient <laughs> for health and safety reasons. So there's little limits to, to what we were doing there. But it was really just to reconstruct, you know, what did this practice look like? You know, what, what, was, sort of the, what was the visual impact? How would an alchemist spend his day? You know, what were the materials they were working with and so on? So I think um, that comes across quite uh, quite nicely. But it's historical reconstruction rather than, you know, I wasn't trying to be an alchemist uh, or, or Andrew was trying to sort of say, can we understand the text? Is the text, can the text be used as a manual? 
you know, how, what was the reason the texts were written in a way, like if you, you know, can you follow their descriptions and so on. And so these are things that we could answer through our experimentation. So it's a little bit different from showing people how to, in a way, you know, it's just sort of give a little bit of a visual idea of what this was like. But you recorded a series of videos, right? That's right. Yeah. And you can see them all. So my project has a website, ayuryog.org. So Mm -hmm. ayur plus yog, just in one word, .org. And you can see the alchemy reconstructions videos on there. But we also have a dedicated uh, YouTube channel. It's also called ayuryog. And and you can find all the videos we made. And then there's also accompanying blog posts that sort of explain what we're doing and what the issues were that arose when we did these documentaries, um, just to sort of uh, enhance the understanding of of the processes. So you can watch all the the videos uh, on our YouTube channel as well. But I think the the website is probably a a good starting point to sort of see all the materials and and, get a bit more explanation of what we were doing with um, with these experiments. Yeah, and we'll we'll certainly link to those websites uh, in the podcast show notes and in the YouTube uh, description below. Um, but I do want to encourage folks to go check that out because there's so many great resources on the irayog.org site, uh, including these really remarkable digital timelines that Dakmar and her team uh, put together, detailing the history of these traditions in a very uh, dynamic, interactive way. Do you want to say anything about these timelines? Well, one is about the interactions of yoga and Ayurveda. So that's uh, really relevant to the course that I'll be teaching here. And I'll be using it uh, for for the course, for teaching the course. And the other one is a timeline of alchemical literature. And there it was really just about sort of just establishing, you know, people's knowledge in the first place. You know, look, there is this literature starts in the 10th century, somewhere around that time, and goes up to the present and so on, just to give people sort of insight into what this literature looks like. So, um, yeah, I think that's a... I, that one I won't uh, use directly for my course, but I will certainly be linking to it so that people can look at it in their own time to get a sort of impression of what kinds of things alchemists were writing. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Dagmar. Um, as we wrap up here, any any final thoughts or reflections or anything you didn't get to say today that you were hoping to? Oh, I don't know about hoping to. I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is the Q&A session. You know, I was saying how I didn't quite know who the audience were. And so I'm not quite sure, you know, who who I'm directing my lectures at. And so in the Q&A session, we will have this great opportunity to talk with each other and sort of, you know, fine tune uh, the materials a bit, you know, see what, you know, things that maybe people were very interested in that I couldn't quite um, talk enough about in the lectures and so on. We can catch up on that and so on and they can ask the questions. So I think the Q&A sessions will be uh, really interesting in this course and, you know, help me formulate my thoughts more uh, for this course. Absolutely. And yeah, uh, we have a very diverse community of students from, of course, all over the world because we're online, but also from really different backgrounds from within, you know, yoga practitioner communities, I think for this course, Ayurvedic practitioner communities, uh, academics, non-academics, dentists, lawyers, you name it, everyone is welcome. So please, if you're interested in these topics and want to dive deeper into Ayurveda, yoga, and alchemy, join us. The course runs live from August 15th through September 9th, 2022. At the time uh, that this is airing, enrollment should be open for this course. Uh, But of course, if you're watching this in the future, uh, then everything's already been recorded and you can still sign up and access all of these wonderful lectures and materials.
So with that, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for watching, for listening. And thank you, of course, to our wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Dagmar Vujastik. <laughs> Looking forward uh, uh, to the course, and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, everyone. Please uh, take care. Bye.